Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm joined by Anne-Margaret Daniel, who has edited a handsome new collection of his lost short stories, I'd Die For You and Other Lost Stories, and by Sarah Churchwell, the author of Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. Welcome both. Anne-Margaret, can I start by just asking you, these are lost stories, how were they lost and how were they found? (laughs) Well, physically, a clutch of them were lost since Fitzgerald's death. And they were rediscovered in early 2012 by the trustees of the Fitzgerald estate, namely by two of his granddaughters, one of whom is is a trustee on the board. And at that point, there were enough unpublished, complete stories to constitute a collection. There had been seven of the stories at Princeton for a number of years and two at the University of South Carolina. Fitzgerald scholars knew about them, but there weren't enough to make a book. So... Partly they were in archives, but partly they were indeed physically lost. They found an extra, a sort of extra batch somewhere in their own archives that they hadn't gone through. In a bank vault, it's my understanding, together with a number of unrelated family papers. And where do they come from in his career? I mean, obviously, if there are, they'll be spread across it a bit, but is there a... Most of them are from the middle to late 1930s, although one is among his first stories. It dates to the summer of 1920. And some are from the early 1930s as well. And how important are they? Sarah, you'll have a view on this as well, I'm sure. I will. Well, they're important to me in that they span the entire sweep of his career, in that they are the last stories he did complete. And we know this because of his letters. He talks in detail about his stories, about what he's working on. There aren't any more. There won't be any more found. These are the last ones. And it's a collection that needs to be added to a conclusion of his completed work as a writer. And Sarah, what, what, what do you think of the stories? Well, I think he, he's such an important writer and he had such a foreshortened career. I mean, I think people don't always remember that he only wrote for 20 years. And although he was incredibly productive during that time. So in my view, with anybody this major, it is important to have as much of their work as we can collect. He was also, however, always an uneven writer from beginning to end. At his best, there's nobody better, but at his worst, he can be absolutely risible. There are some extraordinarily bad stories from uh, his his dark period in the in the mid-1930s uh, called Philippe, Count of Darkness, which Anne-Margaret knows well, in which he tries to do, uh, he tries to write a story about a ninth century French count, and he decides to use hard-boiled 19th 1930s American slang. So it's it, he thought it was modeled on Hemingway. And so there's this medieval French count saying things like, you know, hey, baby. And it was just, anyway, <laughs> I mean, it's just extraordinary. And he was, it, it should be said also, he was not sober when he wrote those stories. And and it's some, and it really tell, you can really tell with those. So it, it, with those caveats that on the one hand, it's really important to have everything. On the other hand, we go into it knowing that they'll be uneven, almost certainly because all of his of is. I think there are some really interesting finds in this collection. I genuinely do. I'm not saying that to be polite to Anne-Margaret because she's sitting across from me and I've known her a long time. But in particular, in particular, I was interested in a story called Salute to Lucy and Elsie, 
it was far and away the most sexually explicit story that Scott Fitzgerald ever wrote. His correspondence is actually marked by a, a much more ribald sense of humor, particularly his letters to Hemingway, but also some of his other male friends. And one really feels the, dis, the, the difference between that if one moves from his um, more unguarded correspondence to his, the stories he intended for publication. And I was not aware that he had ever written anything that was as, I mean, it's a story that opens with a letter from a college room to the other young man, asking whether he managed to, quote, get the lay of a girl, or, or was she still pretending to be Catholic and, that, and to say that she didn't know anything about birth control. And that's how it starts. And then the letter that opens the story ends with the, the young man concerned that, that he's gotten venereal disease, but, but being relieved to announce that he doesn't. And so for Fitzgerald to be dealing with anything that uh, as I say, that explicit and that risque really came as a surprise. Could he have published that? You say in your well, introduction that some uh, of them didn't see the light of day. Cause... It's a story that was a surprise to a number of people, including the Fitzgerald estate, who'd never seen a copy of it before and didn't know that it existed. I'd read it years ago at Princeton, and Arnold Gingrich read it when Fitzgerald first wrote it. He sent it off to Esquire for publication, and Gingrich sent it to his top reader at Esquire. The letter came back saying... This is hot stuff. <laughs> we're going to have to sanitize it and tone it down. I think the words were tone down the Catholic angle. Um, Fitzgerald refused. It's a, yeah, yes. <laughs> Fitzgerald refused to sanitize the story and said he liked it as it stood. That the point of the story was, you know, he's writing about grown-up topics and grown-up things that actually happen to young men, uh, in this case to Yale undergraduates and to girls who are barely 16, if 16. And he, he refused to make the changes, and the story remained unpublished. One thing I found when working on this particular story was two pages survive of an earlier typescript of the story in which the focus is on the girls and their families rather than on the young men and their families. I wish that entire version of the story survived so that we could see Fitzgerald writing from both the point of view of the girls' parents and the boys' parents. Although it's worth saying that these, um, that these rather irresponsible young men uh, who feature in this story are students at Yale, not at Princeton. Fitzgerald tended to put his, his less uh, savory <laughs> characters at Yale, like Tom Buchanan in True. Gadsby and, uh, and not at Princeton, which was his own alma mater. So you can partly judge the, the a moral character of, of Fitzgerald's characters, depending on, on the university they attended. Excellent. Um, that thing, point you make about Fitzgerald as he went on in life, sort of becoming more and more resistant to being edited. It seems sort of a slightly strange contradiction that, you know, he goes on and on, he gets more and more desperate, and he's got no problem with doing what he sees as hack work, banging out short stories for magazines in a sort of semi-contemptuous way. And yet, why would he then be so precious about being edited? Well, I don't think he was so precious about being edited as resistant to the stereotype that he'd himself really let himself in for since the 1920s, of being the sparkling writer of bright young stories and bright young things. And, you know, here it was the 1930s. Other modernists had been allowed to grow up. Hemingway was writing about, I think it's safe to say, salty topics, as was Faulkner, as was Gertrude Stein. Fitzgerald, yes. <laughs> Fitzgerald wasn't allowed. Uh, Fitzgerald was the writer of The Beautiful. And, There's a uh, lovely phrase, actually, in your introduction. You quote someone saying that 
It's the era of a new generation. Editors continue to want stories of flask gin and courteous collegiates preceding ladies through windshields on midnight joyrides. <laughs> yes, that's, that's actually a pretty astute comment by O.O. By o. McIntyre, who realized that Fitzgerald was trying to do something different and was making fun of that, uh, in some ways, ridiculous stereotype of him being a pretty writer when what he was writing about from well before the days of Gatsby were dark and desperate things. I mean, Gatsby, <laughs> we, we have the authority in the room. Gatsby was not a, a lovely novel. It's a novel about adultery and murder and, and mayhem <laughs> and, and, all, and car accidents, as mentioned, and, uh, and all sorts of, of nasty, brutish things. And I think Fitzgerald was very frustrated with not having the respect of editors and, by extension, I suppose, readers, who he couldn't get to other than through editors, to essentially watch him growing up and watch him growing old as, as much as he managed that. How much did this... I mean, the sort of shape of his canon looks different in our age than it did in his. I mean, I think a lot of people would be sort of surprised to know that you know, Gatsby itself was kind of a flop. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and to flip your question around, many of his contemporaries would be amazed that we're using the word canon to describe Fitzgerald. They thought of him, as, as Anne Margaret just described him, as a popular writer of trifles that were at best seasonal, that were at best, you know, kind of what we would call airport reading. They were, they thought of them as disposable and ephemeral. And so the, and in particular, Gatsby marked a turning point in Fitzgerald's career. He, it was basically the point at which his tastes and his audience's started to, to diverge rather drastically. So for, for a few years, he'd had this kind of magical touch where his interests coincided with his audience's interests and his editor's interests. And then he started to feel that that was not sufficient, that he wasn't actually uh, realizing his gifts. He started to think that partly because of what other people were saying to him, to be fair. But he also had the sense himself that he was capable of more and that he wanted to do more. He made a conscious decision when he began working on Gatsby to move away from only pursuing commercial fiction and the wealth it might bring him to make really serious artistic efforts. And he and he pinned everything on Gatsby. He knew how good it was, and he was certain that he'd done something tremendous. And then for the first time, really, in his career, his audience just didn't get it. And from that point on, he continued to try to push himself. He continued to try to do things that were more interesting, to test boundaries. He continued to get a sense of his own uh, constantly increasing abilities, at least for a few years, and then was ever more frustrated by the sense that his audience wasn't hearing him, wasn't seeing it. And the better he thought he got, the worse his audience response was. It was sort of in an inverse proportion. And then as things started to fall apart in the Depression, that became a kind of schism he, 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 couldn't, he, he couldn't quite cope with, really. And it, it was certainly one of the things, that the failure of Gatsby, the relative failure of Gatsby anyway, was certainly one of the things that, that really started him on his, uh, he was already drinking too much. But in my view, it absolutely contributed to the exacerbation of his alcoholism. But he also, I mean, there was this sort of downward spiral, wasn't there? I mean, Zelda's madness and his alcoholism, and suddenly he had no money, didn't he? And was constantly having to go back to Hollywood. Well, from, from 1927, he made essays at Hollywood. Uh, well, in, from earlier than that. Well, in, in, He hadn't gone there physically, but he was trying to sell screenplays from the beginning of his career. No, I meant, you know? I meant going there, yeah. yes. He first went there to work on a screenplay that wasn't accepted. He went back 
ditto. And then in 1937, he went there, as it turned out, uh, for good. I use the word good uh, (laughs) guardedly, (laughs) more like for better or for worse. And yes, he needed money. He needed money terribly. He had a wife who was institutionalized at that point in some of the most expensive private uh, hospitals and sanatoriums in the country. In 1932, she was at the Phipps Clinic at Johns Hopkins, which was, I guess, one of the cutting-edge places in America, certainly for psychology, for psychiatric treatment. It's Think how new the science was at the time. And, you know, Freud not having been translated into English that much earlier, and and America just beginning to deal with psychology as a profession, deal with psychiatric problems as something that could be treated by medicine rather than by simple institutionalization. And Fitzgerald was very concerned that she had the best treatment that could be afforded. Yet even in that desperation for money, he wasn't willing to sell some of these stories for as little as editors were willing to offer. And he's quite clear about that, even with Arnold Gingrich, who did him a tremendous, tremendous good thing by publishing the Pat Hobby stories yeah. and paying him for those at and a the time. The Pat Hobby stories are the ones about the failing screenwriter, where yeah. he kind of... Yes, yes. Well, um, they reproach to himself or a sort of wry thing. I mean, how do you read the Pat The Hobby stories? stories yeah. I don't really read them as a reproach to himself. Fitzgerald had a an immensely keen sense of self-awareness. You see it on marginal scribbles from his darkest days. You see it in reflections of himself, which, of course, are in his stories. Pat Hobby is a failed, uh, middle-aged Irish-American screenwriter whose physical description is very much like that of Fitzgerald himself, who has a secretary who's very much like Francis Kroll at the time who has a terrible drinking problem, ditto. Gingrich found Pat Hobby such a powerful and convincing character that he recommended Fitzgerald turn him into a novel, that he take these stories and collect them, which wasn't done until after his death, of course, but that he write a novel about Pat Hobby, something that, to my knowledge, Fitzgerald never really intended to do. He did have other ideas for novels, including one about the Civil War, but not about Pat Hobby. The lost historical novel that has got the Well, no, you laugh, but I actually think it's a really important point. The and it, and it's one of the things that this collection I think brings out is that sense of Fitzgerald's range. And we were talking earlier about the degree to which he was typecast in his moment, but he's still typecast as the writer of flappers and the writer of of the jalopies and the moonshine yeah. and and all of that stuff. And and in point of fact, he was more interesting than that. He did have he was actually he had keen historical awareness. And in particular, a keen understanding of American history and how his generation both exemplified it and, and rep, uh, at a particular moment, but also represented important shifts. And that's what he was always trying to chronicle. He was a social historian. He was fascinated by the Civil War. And one of the things that I think we've lost track of is that for people in the 1920s, in Americans in the 1920s, the Civil War was a, a milestone in the same way that the Second World War is for us now. They, 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 that was the moment in which their understanding of America had changed. And so Fitzgerald wanting to write a Civil War novel would be like a contemporary novelist thinking, I've always wanted to write that novel about the Second World War. It's not actually, and and it's certainly not Gone with the Wind and Moonlight and Magnolias. He was actually working on Gone with the Wind in Hollywood and uh, and hated it. I mean, he thought the, he thought the, the novel was terrible. 
you were asking earlier about being precious and about going to Hollywood to to try to make some money. And I and I think that the thing to realize is that is that he w- he was trying to make money, but he was never willing to completely sell out. And so he wouldn't do Gone with the Wind the way Margaret Mitchell was doing Gone with the Wind. He thought that was just you know that was just completely beyond the pale. I mean, he would work on Gone with the Wind, but he could only try to make it better. That was the only <laughs> way he could conceive of it. He couldn't try to make it worse. So he talks somewhere, doesn't he, about how writing down yeah, is the, the hardest, hardest thing, thing to for do. a Jewish yeah. person to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in the case of Gone with the Wind, he was that was one of his first big jobs when he went to Hollywood in 37 under contract to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The first half, at least, or the, the a chunk of his work on Gone with the Wind survives in the papers at Princeton, and you can see marginally what he added in his own hand, a line about Gettysburg that really punches out a moment between Scarlet and Rhett. All of his additions that I could find were made to the dialogue. He wanted to make the dialogue more realistic, more attached to a historical moment, something that mattered. And he'd he'd had it with things like Gone with the Wind and So Read the Rose. Uh, The two Civil War stories in this collection, Thumbs Up and Dentist Appointment, are two different versions of a bedtime story his father told him when he was a boy about a relative who had ridden with Mosby's Rangers uh, in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, who had been captured by Yankee scouts and who had been literally strung up by his thumbs. It sounds like a medieval invention that didn't last, but go back and take a look at Harper's Weekly from the 1860s. This was something that officers during the Civil War did not only to captured men, but did to their own men as a punishment, say, for something like stealing, a sort of an eye-for-an-eye quality for stealing or attempted desertion. And Fitzgerald couldn't get the story out of his head. He rewrote it, he rewrote it again and again, He wrote a story set around the battle at Chancellorsville that he tried to sell as a screenplay right up until the last year of his life. Which is which is another story that challenges our cliches about Fitzgerald. It is it is previously published. It's not in this collection called The Night of Chancellorsville, but it's about prostitutes on a train who get caught up in the Battle of Chancellorsville, which is the battle where General Stonewall Jackson was killed by his own men. And Fitzgerald's assuming an audience who knows that he doesn't mm-hmm. really explain that that's what's going on. And and that story's been there for a long time. But when you start to actually see and and the the stories that Anne Margaret has collected here that about the the soldier who's up by his thumbs there was a, a third iteration of it that was published called the end of hate but he, he keeps coming back to that scene about how to write the scene of the man strung up by his thumbs and it's very interesting to see that he does make it uh, more and more painful for the reader uh, it's surprisingly gruesome for, especially for a fitzgerald story he but each time he uses the same phrase of the skin slipping off of his thumbs mm-hmm. Ooh, um, indeed loving <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well one thing that's intriguing about this book is that there are a couple of the stories are in the form of proposals for screenplays. Yes. Can you talk a bit about that? Was that a sort of genuine attempt to write a proposal for a screenplay, or was he actually trying to do something a little bit more sort of postmodern? Well, honestly, I think the first one was a genuine attempt to write a screenplay. This is uh, the one called Gracie at Sea, and it was done on spec for Gracie Allen. Fitzgerald had met Allen and George Burns when they were on a, an American tour, passed through Baltimore, and he... Of course, George Burns is so old that he he was exactly (laughs) when they were all young and having fun. (laughs) I know it's 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 a little jarring when you flip that and you think of the the idea of, say, Scott Fitzgerald as an old man attending the premiere of Oh God. (laughs) He he might have lived to do it under other circumstances. 
But no, he he did this proposal based kind of loosely around the America's Cup races at Newport, which had, which had just happened. And he and a young writer... Baltimore-based writer Bob Spafford put this together for Burns and Allen, who by Fitzgerald's report were very interested in it, thought they wanted to make it as a movie, but it never did get made. He obviously spends more time on that. It's the longest of these screenplay scenarios in the collection. The others are much shorter, uh, much more sketchy, and definitely designed around an idea that he thought would be cinematic. The main problem for Scott Fitzgerald, as I see it, when it comes to his writing for the movies, is that his fiction, his short stories, his novels, are already so cinematic that his language has done all the work. There's really not much left for a cinematographer, for a producer, even for an actor to do. I think this has been one of the banes of The Great Gatsby, turning it into a perfect movie, because in so many ways, the book itself makes a perfect movie in your head as you turn the pages over. It's so sensory. It's full of sound and smell and color and uh, touch. And the dialogues are good as well. <laughs> and, the, and the dialogue is wonderful, both internal and external. It's, it's all of a piece that you can put together in your mind and that you're meant to do as you read it. Harder to do in filmic terms and very frustrating for Fitzgerald. In his work on screenplays, he always focuses on the dialogue. And that's something that he can kind of hang on to is the way characters are speaking to each other. He never got over the idea that he really wanted to have a successful Broadway play. He kept referring to the idea of being a great American playwright as a mirage. Um, It never happened for him, but it makes sense to me because there the concentration would be on the dialogue. In a way, the setting and the the even the plot are are more left up to to the shaping of producers and actors. But the dialogue is what the playwright is is principally charged with, and I think that's why it was appealing to him. Now, for better or for worse, he's always been sort of paired with Hemingway. Mm. And I'm wondering, I'd be interested in both of your opinions as to how, you know, looking back now, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the analogy of Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop, you know, that Bishop's reputation has basically, she was overshadowed in her lifetime by Lowell, but has now pretty much eclipsed him, I would say. I agree. Do you think there's a, a sort of similar process has taken place with Fitzgerald and Hemingway? Certainly at the current moment, that's definitely the case. Of, uh, Hemingway has very much gone out of fashion. I think he's gone out of fashion both academically and popularly, which isn't to say that there aren't people who still enjoy reading him, of course. But he is, um, yeah, he, he doesn't enjoy the same kind of popular acclaim at the moment. You won't find articles about Hemingway in, in magazines in the degree that you are, or, you know, online um, publications to the degree that you are about Fitzgerald right now. To, to a certain degree, I think that's just a matter of trends. You know, Fitzgerald was in Eclipse for a long time, but not by the way. Uh, some people think that it was as if that was always the case, but there, there's been an ebb and flow, and they're kind of two boats. I see them as the kind of Oxford and Cambridge boat race, and one <laughs> one's constantly pulling ahead, and then the other one pulls ahead, and I think that's where they are right now, is right now Fitzgerald is ahead, but Hemingway's right behind him, and at some point, people will get tired of Fitzgerald, and they'll go back to Hemingway. I think at the moment, Hemingway's preoccupations are really out of step with cultural taste, with cultural attitudes. His his very, very anxious sense of his own masculinity is something that readers find off-putting. I think readers are more aware now of his of the degree to which he, he was a, a victim of his own mythology. They find his um, his braggadocio, well, frankly, you know, obnoxious and offensive. And um, and his and his 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 voice is very aggressive. It would have been something on Twitter, though, wouldn't he? <laughs> well, 
something. I'm not sure what. <laughs> I think one of the things he would have been on Twitter is he would have been one of those people who's you know no platformed all over the place. <laughs> so he he was and and I think that he in my view Hemingway is somebody the the similarity between Hemingway and Fitzgerald that people don't talk about enough in my view is that both both of them did their best work when they were extraordinarily young and afterwards always struggled to kind of live up to that early success. Partly that was a problem for both of them with alcohol, but partly that was a problem for both of them with celebrity and with wealth. They they did find it harder to kind of, you know, put their nose to the grindstone and and, and really stick to an artistic vision that, that for Hemingway was clearer earlier, but for Fitzgerald was always a slightly shifting target. You know, after Gatsby's failure, he then thought, he, because he was very, very sensitive to criticism in ways that made him learn very quickly. And they, one of the things that made him so remarkable and so productive in such a short space of time. But because Gatsby failed, he was really concerned to try to understand why that could be. And so then he tried to write something very different, which was Tender as the Night. And then that failed. And then when that failed, he thought, oh, I should have stuck with Gatsby all along. And he wrote some letters towards the end of his life saying, I wish I had just stuck with Gatsby. Gatsby was my metier. That's what I should have done. Hemingway, I think, worked out earlier on what his thing was, and it, but it quickly then became a shtick. And so that was what he did, was just this constantly, you know, self-parodying, mannered, you know, machismo, we all know what it was, the hard-bitten dialogue and all and of that, that stuff. And that kind of... Uh falling into one's own shtick is exactly what Fitzgerald resisted mm. and refused to do. If you go back to the beginning, Fitzgerald is the one who recommended Hemingway to Max Perkins at Scribner, who edited and revised The Sun Also Rises, gave it that strong, literally punchy beginning that it has that uh, helped make it a success. And sorry, to say that, that for clarity, that what you're saying is that Fitzgerald did that edit, not yes. Perkins. Yeah, yes. because so, I'm not sure that that came out, and I think yes. it's a really important point. Fitzgerald edited the novel. The, the letter that he wrote to Hemingway on which Hemingway scribbled obscenities survives. And, it's, and Hemingway denied having taken Fitzgerald's help for the rest of his life. <laughs> he did. And Fitzgerald did a massive editing job on that novel and continued to extol, praise, and promote Hemingway on into the 1930s, even after his star had begun to fall and Hemingway's had begun to rise. Hemingway was envious of Fitzgerald in a way that Fitzgerald never was of Hemingway. Absolutely. When at one of the lowest points of Fitzgerald's life, Hemingway published a nasty, nasty statement about him in a short story, Fitzgerald had to write to him and say, listen, Hem, lay off me in print. It's not something that I do to you. So Hemingway at that point bided his time and waited until Fitzgerald was dead to lay on him in print again. It's also worth adding there to the point about Fitzgerald's magnanimity in that very same letter about the story of the snows of Kilimanjaro, where Hemingway takes this absolute cheap shot at Fitzgerald. And when Fitzgerald says, lay off me in print, he then closes the letter by saying, by the way, it's a magnificent story, one of your best. Yes. I mean, he really was a gent in a way that, that Hemingway simply was not. True. True. I'm afraid I think we've run out of time. And Margaret Daniel, Sarah Churchwell, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. And this week in the print magazine, the book section starts with Philip Hensher reviewing Peter Ackroyd's Queer City, a history of gay London. We also have William Dalrymple writing about John Kay's new book, The Tartan Turban, about an extraordinary Scottish adventurer in Mughal, India in the 19th century. Roger Garside considers a substantial new book about the way religion re-entered China after Chairman Mao. Duncan Fallowell looks at the strange story of an English language press 
that flourished in the Third Reich, Michael Bywater marvels at the history of the Antikythera mechanism, an ancient Greek calculator that was dug up from the bottom of the sea. And finally, Nicholas Lezard considers Laurent Binet's new novel, The Seventh Function of Language, a sort of bizarre murder mystery set around the death of Roland Barthes, the death of the author by Laundry Van.